Bill's in love with Margot Channing. He's fought with her, worked with her, and loved her. But ten years from now, Margot Channing will have ceased to exist. And what's left will be... what? Margot, Bill is all of eight years younger than you. And those years stretch as the years go on. I've seen it happen too often. Not to you, not to Bill. Isn't that what they always say? Now, I don't suppose the heater runs if the motor doesn't. It's silly, isn't it? You think they'd fix it so people could just sit in a car and keep warm? About Eve. I've acted pretty disgracefully toward her, too. Well, don't fumble for excuses. Not here and now with my hair down. At best, let's say I've been oversensitive to her. Well, to the fact that she's so young, so... Feminine and so helpless. To so many things I want to be for Bill. Honey, business a woman's career. The things you drop on your way up the ladder so you can move faster. You forget you'll need them again when you get back to being a woman. It's one career all females have in common, whether we like it or not. Being a woman. Sooner or later, we've got to work at it. No matter how many other careers we've had or wanted. And in the last analysis, nothing's any good unless you can look up just before dinner or turn around in bed. And there he is. Without that, you're not a woman. You're something with a French provincial office or a, a book full of clippings. But you're not a woman. Slow curtain, the end. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 336, all about Eve. That's me, an old kazoo with some sparklers. <laughs> there were some great lines in this movie, but that one really made me lose it. Her delivery of it is great, too. Yes, I teased this one if you recall remember we did a recommendation segment where i said here's three movies we're gonna do in the future just out of the blue mm -hmm. i think this was probably a few months ago well this is the first one we finally got to it all Damn. about eve 1950 as matt was alluding to an incredible script with incredible performances Definitely. very funny and i would like to add a movie that rewards multiple viewings because i was highly entertained the first time i watched this movie but revisiting it now you're picking up on a lot of funny lines tucked in there a lot of innuendo double entendre very funny just a I really know. excellent script it accomplishes a lot by being funny throughout but it is very haunting too even though it never is like a horror movie or anything like that it's just like the idea of it 
is kind of unsettling. Like well, someone, that's Hollywood. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> Even though it's Broadway, yeah. it's Hollywood too. It's a tale as old as time. And for those of you maybe a little unfamiliar with All About Eve, I think the most significant thing you can take away is that it's one of those blueprint-type movies. It's a story unto itself that has been recreated and retold officially and unofficially many, many, many times. There's seemingly an infinite number of other films and TV shows that did specific episodes as homages, all kinds of different tributes, homages, parodies. Definitely. All kinds of things. You see the theme pop up all over the place. By the way, another reminder that age is a horrible thing. Yeah, it's cool because you wouldn't expect something this pertinent, relevant, mm-hmm. and also feminist, really. Yeah. It's basically highlighting something that we're super familiar with now, even all of these years later. We're basically 73 years after this movie came out, and mm-hmm. not that much has changed, even post Me Too and Time's yeah. Up and all that stuff, where it's basically like, well... You hit 30, you hit 40, whatever, whatever the delineation is, it's time to put you out the pasture because we got a fresh crop coming in. I feel like we've done a few of these movies where it's an older movie, it's a golden age of Hollywood movie where they're exploring the whole aging star and like the, the sadness behind that. I feel like we've done multiple movies where that's been the case. Well, this came out the exact same year as Sunset Boulevard. Oh, wow. Yeah. Norma so. Desmond. <laughs> It was on people's minds, and it's been on people's minds for a long time. Definitely. Before we discuss all about Eve in depth, let's remind everyone to follow the show on X slash Twitter at GreatestPod. You can also reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read your emails on the show. We're going to circle back to listener requests and emails in a second. But if you'd like a sticker, let us know. We'll ship that to you for free. You can support the show by putting it on your car, your yeah. guitar, your laptop, whatever you want to do. Send us a pic in the email. Granted, it doesn't specify on the sticker that it's a podcast or where you would find right. it or it's anything about it. But if you know, you know situation. <laughs> yeah, that's the way we like it. Totally. And you can find us on Letterboxd. I'm Zach1983 and Matt is at Matt Crosby on there. So I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about the listener requests because we've had an influx of new ones come in out of nowhere. So I want to get everyone on the same page. So as of me recording this right now, we're recording Sunday, August 20th. We are completely filled for this year. (laughs) So we cannot do your listener request in 2023. But our books are not closed for business. No. You can obviously still send us the listener requests and the prices are still the same as they were. We're a little flexible, but as long as it's, you know, under two hours and 30 minutes, you're okay for 50. And then beyond that, we're looking at 75. That's still the case. We're moving into 2024. We've had so many come in that we're already taking up slots in 2024. I know it's nuts to say this now, and Matt's probably going to lose his patience with me (laughs) because I'm going to probably repeat it constantly. But I feel like everyone needs to be on the same page now. Here's what we're doing for 2024. We are doing three themed months that we will not do listener requests during. Those happen to be June, October, and November. The November theme will be a surprise next year. But it doesn't matter right now. So that leaves nine. 
We're doing two per month. That's the new standard. No more than two listener requests per month. So now we're down to 18 for next year. We've already filled up at least two slots as of today. So now we're down to 16. Okay. That's all we're going to do for next year. So if you're interested, feel free to send them in. Right now, the prices are the same. You don't need to worry about any price increase. That will go into effect after we actually get into next year. But right now, the price is still the same. Two a month. We have, I think, 16 slots left. Hmm. Will we actually fill those? I don't know. Yeah, there's We a don't lot care. Of, uh, I guess either no. way, we're fine. <laughs> there's a lot of peaks and valleys when it comes to the requests coming in. Yeah. We love doing them, and we appreciate the support. And believe me, it's a thrill that people are interested in us covering the subjects they want to hear. And I'm excited and blown away every time we get one. But if... We don't ever get another one. We have plenty of our own subjects to get to, too. So whatever happens, happens. But that's where we're at. I want everyone to know we are into 2024. If you gave me a listener request tonight, I'm going to be telling you we're not going to be getting to it till February. So you have a choice as to whether or not you actually want to give us money for that. There's a backlog. I would almost recommend at a certain point maybe waiting. I don't want to tell people to wait though and then have the whole year fill up and then someone come to me and say well you said to wait so i don't know it's up to you but if you're cool with just handing over money and then who knows how long it's going to take then by all means but i don't want to lead anyone on and have them give us money and then a few months from now be like what the fuck is going on yeah no i want to be clear we'll get to it we will but i just want everyone to be on the same page and be clear about it and, and if I get hit by a bus, Zach will refund the money. Well, right. Yeah. If something were to happen, we could obviously refund the money. But. <laughs> the, I'm the only one in this situation that is going to have something horrible happen to them. <laughs> well, if I was hit by a bus, I don't know if you would know how to refund their money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll figure it out. In that same vein, we can expand the email prompts a little bit. I've already asked for everyone who has done a listener request or is in the process of doing one to please reach back out to us and tell us your relationship with the movie, why you wanted us to do it, how you first came to see it, what you thought about the episode, if we already did it, those kind of things, whatever. I would expand that even one step further if you'd like to email us your personal anecdotes about any other movie we've ever done. Or a movie that we haven't done that you're not sure if we will or whatever. Any kind of personal story. Mm -hmm. If we cover Mad Max Fury Road and it wasn't your listener request, but you have some interesting story that you went on a date or whatever. Or who knows, maybe you were 14 years old when Basic Instinct came out and you and your buddy snuck into it or something. I don't know. Whatever it wow. is, tell us your personal I, anecdotes about movies. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are a true legend if you did that. <laughs> if you ever were at a sleepover and it was the first time you saw a movie with boobs in it, <laughs> believe me, we want to hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> Anything like that, any personal anecdotes about any of the movies we've covered or have not covered, that would be another email prompt for you greatestpod at gmail.com. Let's get into All About Eve. 1950. We have not done a ton of movies this old, but hopefully over the next however many years we keep doing this, we'll integrate a few older films totally. from time to time. We know we have a few listeners that are interested in this era. All About Eve was directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, written for the screen by Mankiewicz, based on the 1946 story The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr, 
which, believe it or not, was uncredited, but that was part of the deal that got worked out. And what's crazy is now with this Mank stuff, you're like, oh, there was two. That's his brother. Popular or successful Mankowitzes working in film in this era. Yeah, his brother. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they really cornered the market on top-notch screenplays. Orr's short story, The Wisdom of Eve, was written in four days and based on true events suggested by Elizabeth Bergner. It was bought and published by Cosmopolitan Magazine in 1946 for $800. It was later adapted into the Academy Award-winning film All About Eve. The original story was also produced as a radio drama for NBC, but every studio rejected it as a film project. Eventually, Fox bought the rights for $3,500 with no credit stipulations. All right. Joseph L. Mankiewicz combined the wisdom of Eve with a story he had been developing about an actress who recalls her life when receiving an award. For those of you who have never seen All About Eve or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast, you can currently find it streaming on the Criterion channel hmm. or, get that back. of course, rent it yeah, on streaming. I had to rent. I was a renter on Prime. Yeah, that's sort of disappointing considering it has a Criterion edition that you don't know. Well, it's on the list now. <laughs> Next sale. <laughs> All About Eve is one of the most celebrated and honored films in the history of American cinema. The film was nominated for 14 Academy Awards, which at the time was a record, winning six Oscars, including Best Actor in a Supporting Role for George Sanders, Best Costume Design, Black and White, for Edith Head and Charles Lemaire, Best Sound Recording for Thomas T. Moulton, Best Screenplay for Mankiewicz, Best Director for Mankiewicz. He actually won those two awards in back-to-back years, having already won in 1949, mm. and also Best Picture. All About Eve also received nominations for Ann Baxter and Betty Davis in the category of Best Actress, for Celeste Holm and Thelma Ritter in the category of Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Music, and Best Art Direction Set Decoration. I'm not going to go through who, yeah. who actually won all of those categories, but we'll, we'll cover some of the notable films of 1950. So it definitely got some critical buzz. Sunset Boulevard, Harvey, Father of the Bride, The Asphalt Jungle, Born Yesterday, The Third Man, The Furies, wow. King Solomon's Mines, and Annie Get Your Gun were the big films at that year's Academy Awards. That's quite a year. All About Eve holds the record for mo- the most female acting Oscar nominations in a single film with four, Ann Baxter, Betty Davis, Celeste Holm, and Thelma Ritter. Also shares the record for most overall nominations with 14, which was equaled by Titanic and La La Land. Aye. Betty Davis had just turned 42 as she undertook the role of Margot Channing, and Ann Baxter, still an up-and-comer, not only wowed audiences with her performance, but successfully pressured the powers that be for an Oscar nomination in the Best Actress category rather than Best Supporting Actress. This is thought to have split the vote between herself and Davis. Wow. The winner... Uh, life imitating art there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The winner for the 1950 Best Actress was Judy Holliday for her noticeable turn in Born Yesterday. So Baxter's actions, in effect, blocked Davis's chances for the win. More to come on Born Yesterday when we get to recommendations. Okay. 
one of only five films to receive two Academy Award nominations for Best Actress. In this instance, Baxter and Davis. The other four films are Suddenly Last Summer. Yes. Which was also directed by Mankiewicz with Katherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor. Definitely. The Turning Point with Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine. Terms of Endearment, Ooh. which also was MacLaine with Deborah Winger. And Thelma and Louise, for which Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon were nominated. With these five competitions, MacLaine is the only one to win, and that was for Terms of Endearment. So most of the time, it's hard to win if you have two from totally. the same movie. Yeah. It splits the vote. Although you weren't denying Shirley MacLaine for Terms of Endearment. No. Not after that hospital scene. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a break. (laughs) This was the start of quite the run for Thelma Ritter, the first of four films in four successive years in which she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She was also nominated for The Mating Season 1951 with A Song in My Heart in 52 and Pick Up on South Street in 1953. I would know her best from rear window however i think she had a total of six nominations in a 13 year stretch wow so she was sort of the go-to supporting actress yeah she was like a character actress i love thelma ritter especially because of rear window but it is a little weird that she's nominated for this movie because she's really only in the beginning narrative yeah (laughs) she does have some like important scenes though or i guess one that comes to mind yeah, but ultimately, her distrust of Eve never actually goes anywhere. True. So it, I don't know. It's just a weird nomination. I think the supporting acting nominations throughout the history of the Academy Awards, there's probably a this lot does, of weird nominees. It does feel like that pops up, where there's somebody that comes in for like a couple scenes, and that makes it. Yeah. Because even though that little factoid about Baxter makes it seem as if she screwed over Betty Davis. Honestly, Eve is in the movie basically as much. I don't want to say anything too crazy here. The name of the movie is all about (laughs) Eve. Okay. If you were going to pick one lead, it's obviously Betty Davis. Mm -hmm. But to put Ann Baxter in the same category as Thelma Ritter, who's only in a couple scenes, that would be ridiculous. Yeah. And by the way the movie ends, it does seem like it's about Eve. Now, All About Eve is considered one of the greatest films ever made. In 1990, it became one of 25 films selected for preservation in the United States Library of Congress's National Film Registry deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The film was ranked number 16 on AFI's 1998 list of the 100 Best American Films, it has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, was put in the Producer Guild's Hall of Fame, and was ranked as the fifth best screenplay ever written by the Writers Guild of America. Wow. Deservedly so. And that stands out now some, whatever we're at, 70 plus years later. The script is incredible for this. After doing our podcast for low these many years, we have a reasonable idea of the type of things that our listeners are interested in, and Although, as you said, we do have some listeners who enjoy the older films. I think that based on the download numbers, it definitely seems like our listeners skew more towards the recent stuff. Definitely. So that's why I wanted to run through the resume there. I generally don't list 
AFI rankings, and I've kind of moved away from Rotten Tomatoes Uh, as a thing. But I felt like here's a bunch of shit just so you know where we're starting with. Yeah. Because this is always the curse of being something so important and iconic, which Mm -hmm. is you've been imitated so much, and it's so much a part of everybody's pop culture experience, whether they've seen the film or not, that it detracts potentially from fully experiencing the film as original and unique and revolutionary it was at the time because how could it ever feel that way now when you've had 73 years of pop culture that have been referencing this yeah yeah. either consciously or subconsciously there's a million variations of this and what they're doing in this movie and they're definitely kind of like sunset boulevard when i was going on and on about Gloria Swanson and I'm like she's inventing a performance that's never been done before right there's a little bit of that in in here too not necessarily with just the performances but with the story structure and a little bit of the directing choices because even having the freeze frame I was thinking of Goodfellas I was thinking of Scorsese I know that this is William Friedkin's favorite movie of all time oh yeah coincidentally enough after reading the the email about him last time but there's a reason why a lot of the old-time directors who were the young guys at one point, they all respect and admire this film. Definitely. Because you would think on the surface, what does this movie have to do with something that the guy who made The Exorcist would make? <laughs> you know, why would that even... How could that be similar? But there's so many cool things in this movie that don't seem as cool just because so many other people did them later, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. It's always going to seem less than over time when it's that great yeah, in the first that's place. That's the thing. When something has been replicated, referenced countless times, it feels less original. The story of All About Eve originated in an anecdote related to Mary Orr by the actress Elizabeth Bergner while performing in The Two Mrs. Carrolls during 1943 and 1944. Bergner allowed a young fan to become part of her household and employed her as an assistant but later regretted her generosity when the woman attempted to undermine her. Referring to her only as, quote, the terrible girl, Bergner related the events to Orr, who used it as the basis for her short story, The Wisdom of Eve. In the story, Orr gives the girl an even more ruthless character and allows her to succeed in stealing the older actress's career and the husband of the unnamed female narrator. Bergner later confirmed the basis of the story in her autobiography, which I don't, I'm not going to read the actual title, but in translated into English says greatly admired and greatly scolded, <laughs> which okay. is kind of funny. Yeah. In 1949, Joseph Mankiewicz was considering a story about an aging actress, and upon reading The Wisdom of Eve, felt that the conniving girl would be a useful element. He sent a memo to Daryl F. Zanuck saying it, quote, fits in with an original idea of mine and can be combined superb starring role for Susan Hayward. Mankiewicz presented a film treatment of the combined stories under the title Best Performance. He changed the main character's name from Margola Cranston to Margot Channing and retained several of Orr's characters, Eve Harrington, Lloyd, and Karen Richards, and Miss Caswell, while removing Margot's husband completely and replacing him with a new character, Bill Sampson. The intention was to depict Margot in a new relationship and allow Eve to threaten Margot's professional and personal lives. Mankiewicz also added the characters Addison DeWitt, Bertie Coonan, Max Fabian, and Phoebe. Okay, so he fleshed things out a bit. 
the wisdom of Eve is included in the little Criterion booklet. It's okay. a couple of pages. It just appeared in a magazine. Yeah. It's not like a fully fleshed out novel or gotcha. anything. Interesting point on the Bill Sampson character. As I watched the Amazon Prime streaming version of this, and I had the subtitles on, they consistently wrote Simpson as the characters were saying Samson. It was spelled I know. There does seem to be some confusion over that because okay. IMDb, I believe, has Simpson. Wikipedia has Samson. Okay, yeah. And I believe the characters are saying Samson. It sounds like Samson. But yeah, there does seem to be some people who think it's Simpson. Because okay. I've seen that a couple places. But I think it is Samson. I'm going I, with Samson. I was hearing Samson, and then I did the check Wikipedia, and I'm like, okay, it is Samson. This must be a subtitle issue but sounds like maybe there's a little bit more controversy there <laughs> it's a it's a yeah. secret so there's actually an e-true hollywood story about this <laughs> aj pence's on the case <laughs> zanuck was enthusiastic and provided numerous suggestions for improving the screenplay in some sections he felt that mankowitz's writing lacked subtlety or provided excess detail he suggested diluting bertie coonan's mistrust of eve so that the audience would not recognize Eve as a villainess until much later in the story. There's an example right there of how the appreciation and interpretation of a story can evolve and change over time. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that anybody with 2023 eyes is watching this for the first time and not being suspicious totally. of Eve the entire yeah. time. But in 1950, I could see people weren't accustomed to this kind of stuff. Is it we just have a more cynical lens now? For sure, yeah. and part of it is because we've seen stories it's, like this right, a million exactly. times. Yeah. I'm sure some people guessed. Yeah, I don't think right. that it was like a This is shock. the most shocking thing that's ever happened. Oh, but how could this be, Eve? I'm sure that some people were surprised. Yeah, they didn't yeah. see exactly what was coming. Zanuck reduced the screenplay by about 50 pages and chose the title All About Eve from the opening scene in which Addison DeWitt says that he will soon tell more of Eve, all about Eve, in fact. And that brings me to a great point, which is how significant it is to have a great title. The original yeah. title of this film was going to be Best Performance. Nope. <laughs> That's not a winner. <laughs> Best Performance <laughs> yeah. stinks. That's a movie no one cares about and remembers. I don't think that wins any Academy Awards. <laughs> it's tough to say because yeah. I'm sure that we've gotten accustomed to some titles and just accept them for what they are. Mm-hmm. But if they would have been rejected and switched, we would probably would goof on them. Right. Thinking, oh, yeah, that title, please. But all about Eve, there's interest. There's intrigue. Who's Eve? What What do we need to know about her? What's yeah. going on? Best performance. Come on. It's too generic. Exactly. <laughs> Best performance kind of seems like the lifetime version of this movie. There was another version called Applause, but we'll talk about well, that later. Well, there you later. go. <laughs> this movie deals with some things that I think we should probably set up a little bit yeah. to contextualize it. So, first of all, in 1950, Hollywood was far from being as established as it is now. Actors and actresses were not paid these outrageous salaries. The idea of celebrity was much different, and Broadway was much more of a big deal. Yeah, This movie highlights the antagonism that existed between Hollywood and Broadway when they were much more on the same level and seen as sort of competition in a sense i don't know necessarily by audiences but by the people who could participated in the fields i think broadway looked down on hollywood to a certain extent and hollywood probably saw itself as a bigger deal yeah and eventually 
there would just be way too much money involved in right. Hollywood, and it would definitely surpass Broadway as far as a cultural imprint. And I just think that whatever antagonism existed between the two has become irrelevant. There's uh, really I'd no so. yeah. competition anymore. But yeah, you do have to put yourself in that frame of mind that there is some glamour to the Broadway scene. I mean, I would say our main foursome here seems like they live a life of luxury. Yeah, they're probably on the same level of movie stars of 1950, which is to say that they're upper middle class mm -hmm. to the bottom of the upper class. It's not as if you were necessarily making a ton of money in Hollywood back then if you were just an actress, but while your career was going well, you could be living the life. It yeah. wasn't generational wealth, though. Like now, you weren't getting $25 million for a movie or something. Right. But you could live pretty well while while it was going on. Totally. Which is sort of where Margot is at in the film. We've already touched on it, but Sunset Boulevard came out the same year. This movie deals with the similar idea of aging actresses and the never-ending vicious cycle, which is something that even when we aren't talking about these two films, we've talked about plenty. There just aren't that many opportunities for women at a certain point. If Tom Cruise or Harrison Ford or any of these guys want to keep making movies every year, yeah. they basically can, whereas women, it gets a little trickier after they reach a certain age. Right. And it gets it's almost like a funnel. Yeah. Because you have so many when they're in their 20s, and then by the time you get to their 40s, there's only like Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep and a few. Mm -hmm. I think it's changing finally but it's still slow definitely there's definitely way more older actresses now that people know who they are and know their names but it's still nowhere close to being the same as with men Both? there's no career uncertainty at a certain point when you're a movie star as a man oh yeah if you've reached a certain level you're gonna be fine whereas a woman it could still end at any moment a couple of bad movies in a row true and so this is something that creative types and Hollywood have been interested in for 70 plus years. They, they were making a movie about it in 1950. Definitely. And the other crossover with this and Sunset Boulevard is shining a light on sort of the darkness in Hollywood and fame and showbiz. Mulholland Drive. Yeah. <laughs> a, a little bit, a little bit darker take even. The other major factor going on here that I think we need to contextualize for people is that all About Eve is set in present day of 1950. So you're talking about not even a full decade post-World War II. After the war ended, there was definitely this idea of, I guess, what is modern feminism in 1950? Do we return to the traditional female roles now that the men have returned from the war? Or do we continue on? And it's about having your career versus being a housewife. And the movie really does have the two distinct Margots. And I guess if you wanted to look at it in a 2023 lens and, and argue over the feminist perspective of the film, what is the message? Because you have old Margot, and then you have new and improved yeah. Margot at the end. So is the movie telling us that it's better to be a happy housewife, something that she is so, yeah, I guess, derisive towards at the beginning of the film and then embraces for herself by the end? Not enough can be said about the Betty Davis performance because you just a hundred percent buy it. Like sometimes you think about a transition like that, and it could be like kind of hokey, or you're just not believing that a character would go from being so convicted about not changing to this. But she does it in such a 
believable way. For sure, yeah. Obviously, the the centerpiece of this film is the incredible performance from Betty Davis, who yep. obviously is one of the the most I- iconic Hollywood actresses of all time, and this is her defining role. And a role that feels like it was written for her, even though it wasn't, and we'll get into the casting a little bit more as we go, yeah. but it feels like no one else could have been this person. Agreed. And yet, she was not the first choice and not the second choice, and in a lot of ways... This movie revived her career. She was sort of in a, a rough spot. Even though this is 12 or 13 years before the other Betty Davis movie we did on the show, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I know, which seems a little similar. It's a lot weirder and darker and a different <laughs> thing altogether, but it is someone who had a career and then Sure, yeah. There's a little it. bit of similarities there, but that one's much more of a psychological For sure. nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Betty Davis said in her autobiography, I can think of no project that from the outset was as rewarding from the first day to the last. It is easy to understand why. It was a great script, had a great director, and was a cast of professionals, all with parts they liked. It was a charmed production from the word go. Which for her is rare sentiment. She was not one to hold back of her feelings on many of the films she worked on, many of the writers and directors she worked with, and many of her castmates. <laughs> that was sort of her thing. So she, to heap that kind of praise meant that she really thought this was something. Yeah, she really made a career of shit-talking. Yeah, that was definitely a different era of people. We don't have anybody like these people now. No. So let's get into it. Eve Harrington, we're at a, a banquet. She wins the Sarah Siddons Award. Mm-hmm. She's already a star. She's already a somebody. When we're starting, we're hearing narration. It's from the critic, Addison DeWitt, played by George Sanders. One of the other cool things about this movie that was probably a little bit more inventive in 1950 was how there's multiple narrators. At one point, fucking yes. Margot is narrating, right? which is very weird. And again, that's something that shouldn't work. If you were in a screenwriting class, they would probably say don't have any narrators, let alone three. I know, and there's like long gaps between narration being a part of it. And you don't even really need it, but that's <laughs> the thing. Like When it's good, it's just good. And when it's bad, it's just bad. Mm-hmm. There's people who are, have been listening to our podcast right now who are shutting it off being like, all right, enough with these guys. Yeah. That's their level of reviewing a movie <laughs> when it's good it's just good and when it's bad it's just bad but sometimes dynamite i actually think that that's not that bad of a theory to have sometimes something's just good enough to get past the things that would ruin other things mm-hmm. so yes there's a lots of things about this movie that probably shouldn't work yeah and you probably want Margot to be in more involved in the ending you probably want birdie's storyline to continue and go somewhere you probably want to see more of Eve actually being a great actress, you want to like buy into the characters and their performance. But it doesn't matter. None of those things, the nitpicks you can come up with, end up mattering. And I felt the same way about Reservoir Dogs. That's There's true. tons of things to nitpick in Reservoir Dogs. And yet it's just good. Yeah, It doesn't matter. And yet if a movie is just bad, you would fixate on these things and be like, this is a problem. This that needs is fixed. true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I think when you're working on something and you put it out there and you take a look at it, you should know if it doesn't work. At this point, Broadway star Margot Channing, played by Betty Davis, has very recently turned 40 years old and can't help but to worry about what advancing age will mean for her 
career. And in this moment, at this banquet, the Sarah Siddons Awards, it's clear that Margot is a star too. But we don't know the context yet. We have two stars. One's winning an award. One is smoking, sitting in a chair. Everything that Davis does in this sequence at the beginning is unbelievable. It's not over the top. It's not Jim Carrey or anything like that. And yet it's also very funny. Mm -hmm. We know who this person is. And in fact, I would say that the character types or even the real life versions of this person are probably imitating Margot Channing in some way. Margot Channing is a character type. <laughs> she's got the Betty Davis eyes. Oh yeah. She looks tired all the time. Like she's just seen it all. Right. She's seen the world. Not impressed by much. Lighting a cigarette, watching these jackasses talk first to this old guy who never shuts up and right. then eventually Eve comes up and I think just seeing Betty Davis's face in the first five minutes of the movie yeah. you immediately grasp it's that a, it's gonna be great it's a full body <laughs> eye roll situation <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly upon learning that he had cast Betty Davis one of her former directors Edmund Golding rang up Joseph L. Mankiewicz and warned him that she would grind him down into a fine powder <laughs> This was a reference to her on-set behavior, not the least of which was rewriting her dialogue. What a reputation to have. The warning proved to be unnecessary, however, since Davis knew better than to mess with Mankiewicz's finely-tuned screenplay. In fact, Mankiewicz found her to be one of the most professional and agreeable actresses he'd ever worked with. Yeah, so take that. And the reality of it was that Davis really needed the part at that particular moment in time, she admitted later on that Mankiewicz's casting her in this movie saved her career from oblivion after a series of unsuccessful films. She said in a 1983 interview, he resurrected me from the dead. How about that? Among the actresses originally considered to play Margot Channing were Mankiewicz's original inspiration, Susan Hayward, who was rejected by Zanuck as too young, Marlene Dietrich, dismissed as, quote, too German, and Gertrude Lawrence, who was ruled out when her lawyer insisted that she not have to drink or smoke in the film and that the script would be rewritten to allow her to sing a torch song. Yikes. <laughs> okay. Well, I think they were horrified because they knew how crucial that 25-minute party scene was. Right. And if she's not going to drink and smoke, then yeah, you can't do the movie. That's the whole thing. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Zanuck favored Barbara Stanwyck, but she was not available. Tallulah Bankhead was considered, as was Joan Crawford, who was working on the film The Damned Don't Cry. Wow, so it was a long list. The role went to Claudette Colbert, who is most famous, I guess, for being in It Happened One Night. Ah. But she withdrew after an injury shortly before filming began. Mankiewicz briefly considered Ingrid Bergman before offering the role to Betty Davis. Davis, who had recently ended an 18-year association with Warner Brothers after several poorly received films, accepted the role after realizing that the script was among the best that she had ever read. Margot had been originally conceived as genteel and knowingly humorous, but with the casting of Davis, Mankiewicz revised the character to introduce abrasive qualities, which I think makes the character a thousand times better and more interesting. Absolutely. Although you got to love it that that's what you're bringing to the table. <laughs> they have to rewrite the character to yeah. fit your abrasiveness. <laughs> <laughs> 
they cast me in the movie, and they're like, oh, we have to rewrite it to be a homeless guy. <laughs> Mankiewicz praised Davis for her professionalism and for the caliber of her performance. After the fact, the Sarah Siddons Award becomes real. It was not real at the time. It was okay. invented for the film, but it did become a theater award presented to actresses based on their work. Well, that's a fun piece of trivia. Both Betty Davis and Ann Baxter at certain points were awarded the Sarah Siddons Award. After the freeze frame, we have a narrator shift to Karen, played by Celeste Holm, wife of a playwright named Lloyd. Co-star Celeste Holm spoke about her experience with Betty Davis on the first day of shooting, saying, quote, I walked onto the set on the first day and said, good morning. And do you know her reply? She said, oh, shit, good manners. I never spoke to her again, ever. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like the feeling was mutual because years later, Betty Davis said in an interview, filming All About Eve was a very happy experience. The only bitch in the cast was Celeste Holm. <laughs> Good Lord. Celeste Holm had recently left 20th Century Fox after a bitter contract dispute with Daryl F. Zanuck, who then wow. had to rehire her at Joseph L. Mankiewicz's <laughs> insistence. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, she had just come off of winning Best Supporting Actress, and I believe Thelma Ritter had already won at least once at some right. point. I think there was a couple of supporting actress so winners look, in here. A lot of weirdness on set. A lot of ego. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of stuff happening. <laughs> people having to swallow their pride and hire people that they fired previously. No, it was actually Ann Baxter, not Thelma Ritter. I don't think Ritter had won yet. Ann Baxter had spent a decade in supporting roles and had won the 1946 Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for The Razor's Edge she won the role of Eve after Jean Crane, the first choice, became pregnant. Crane was at the height of her popularity and had established a career playing likable heroines. Zanuck believed that she lacked the, quote, bitch virtuosity required <laughs> by the part and that audiences would not accept her as a deceitful character. Wow. Say that going into the casting room. <laughs> We're looking for some bitch virtuosity. Well, Matt, it was 1950. I think the, the men could pretty much do and say whatever they wanted. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I think it was interesting, though, that clearly Mankiewicz was interested in casting against type with Crane, who he had worked with, I believe, in his previous film where he had won Best Director and, and Best Writer, A Letter for Three Wives, I think it was called, from 1949. So Gene Crane was in that. I guess he wanted to cast against type so that perhaps the reveal of Eve's true nature would be even more shocking to the audience. Now we fade back into time, and the story will be told as a flashback from that Sarah Siddons banquet after a performance of Margot's latest play <laughs> called Aged in Wood. <laughs> the titles of the plays are hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Karen, her close friend, brings a little pitiful fan backstage to meet the big star. The fan is a young woman named Eve Harrington, played by Ann Baxter, and she's got quite the tale for everyone. So this little sad woman has been hanging around the theater during this whole performance. Eventually, Karen feels sorry for her and brings her backstage. Oh, please. I just love Miss Margot and would love my opportunity to meet her. No, she wouldn't say Miss Margot. She would say Mrs. Channing. Yeah. Really, Karen? A stalker in <laughs> yeah, a trench coat? Seriously. Man, celebrity culture was very different pre-Manson murders. Definitely. This weirdo is hanging around in an alley. I'm going to bring her backstage. 
As soon as she does, though, before she even meets Margot, Eve gets to see the world from the point of view of being on stage as she walks through the backstage area and then right. ducks over and looks at it. She gets that little taste. There's a glimmer of hope in her eye. Karen's like, come on, you little psycho, get in here. <laughs> I want to introduce you to my friends so we can all laugh at how much better we're living than you. In Margot's dressing room, Eve tells Karen, Lloyd, and Margot's maid, Birdie, played by Thelma Ritter, that she followed Margot's last theatrical tour to New York City after seeing her perform in San Francisco. She tells an engrossing story of growing up poor in Wisconsin and losing her husband, Eddie. That's right. In the South Pacific during World War II. We hear uh, all about her times working as a secretary in a brewery. Margot, moved by Eve's story, decides to take her into her home as an assistant, upsetting Bertie. Who seemingly is already filling the role of assistant. Did you get that? I guess she was just supposed to be the maid. Okay. What was the name of David Spade's assistant that attacked him? Skippy? Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) What are we doing here? We're just hiring anybody off the streets to be an assistant? (laughs) Skippy. They're all shook by how lame she is, too. Yeah. Her story stinks so much that they can't help but feel sorry for her. All right. You can hang out with us from now on. I think the cool thing, though about Margot is that she seems like this bitch extraordinaire and yet under the surface I do think that she's kind and feels sympathy and empathy towards people Agreed. because I don't know why, why else, else would she do this totally I don't know why else she would take this girl in and I think that that is a huge distinction between the two because yeah. later when Eve does the same thing to Phoebe I think there is a reason why Eve does it and it's different from why Margot does it. I think Eve does it because she doesn't have any friends. Totally. And she realizes that she yeah. doesn't have any friends and she's lonely. Whereas Margot, I think, does have friends, clearly. She's got a social circle. Right. They all are under the spell of Eve, to Eve's credit. They're sort of falling for this. They're like, oh, this poor sweet girl, we like having her around. For the most part, although I don't think they're expecting Margot to go this far away. True. It. Right. I think they would all be fine with being polite and then never seeing her Goodbye, again. Goodbye, Eve. Yeah. yeah. There's the door. Despite their character's tense relationship on screen, Betty Davis and Ann Baxter got along very well during filming. The studio tried to play that up all during the filming, recalled Baxter, but I liked Betty very much. She'd come on the set and go, sss, at me, but it was just a joke between us. Davis liked Baxter, too, which was quite a compliment, as Davis reportedly didn't often like her female co-stars. She felt that Baxter did an excellent job with her part as Eve and publicly praised her for it. Betty Davis's marriage to William Grant Sherry was in the throes of breaking up while she was making the film. Her raspy voice in the film is largely due to the fact that she burst a blood vessel in her throat from screaming at her soon-to-be ex-husband during one of their many fights. Yikes. Director Joseph L. Mankiewicz liked the croaky quality, so he didn't have Davis try to work around it. And that led to certain actresses feeling as if they were being parodied as Margot Channing. But it was legitimately an injury that was causing her voice to be a little gruffer than usual. So then she spent many a night having to recreate this, just finding some random people to scream at so that she could (laughs) blow out her voice again. She was screaming at that bitch Celeste Holm. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so funny because when you see Karen in this movie... She seems so sweet. She just seems like like a harmless dork. Right. (laughs) She's one of those women who 
God, she's probably so young in this movie, yet she already kind of looks like someone's grandma. Right. I agree. Eve's story is very dramatic, but it feels like she's kind of making up bits of it as she goes, if you pay attention. She'll say two things, and then the third thing, it always seems as if she's just thinking of that third thing. Right. She has a certain rhythm to how she's saying it, and there's differences, and that makes me think that some of those things are true, and then she'll elaborate or expand upon it, and then that will be the false part or something. And if you pay super close attention, it doesn't seem like she blinks very often, especially when she goes into these trances and starts telling her little tales. gazing off into who knows. (laughs) Yeah. When she launches into one of her monologues, you're wondering, who the fuck is she talking to? (laughs) She starts looking off into space. I got to tell you, you reminiscing about being a secretary in a brewery in Wisconsin doesn't seem that glamorous, so you can, you know, just focus on me. (laughs) All About Eve is a true acting showdown with two very powerful and fascinating performances that are also very different. Betty Davis filmed all of her scenes in just 16 days, an efficiency that's almost hard to believe. And then it became a career-defining role as well. A bit of Joseph L. Mankiewicz's direction that gave Betty Davis a huge handle on her character was that Margot treated a mink coat like it was a poncho. And I guess that was enough to really send her on the way. We also meet Gary Merrill as Bill, Margot's boyfriend, which is an interesting character to have in this film because... When you think of older Hollywood productions, a woman of 40, a character of 40, I would say most of the time they're either going with unmarried, yeah, shrew, or married. They're not having a 40-year-old woman who's actively dating a boyfriend. True. That's very weird for 1950 and but, adds a different dimension to Margot. It makes her seem yeah. more human. I agree. I really am into the Margot-Bill love connection. Yeah. I think it's cool. Like, these two kind of aged in their profession, but you could tell that they've just been having fun. Yeah, and it all pushes it in the same direction because you have Margot turning 40 years old, and the main issue in the film is her career and aging out of her career and a young woman coming in. But Bill is eight years younger than Margot, and that's another thing that she has all this anxiety about and a lot of it seems to be in her head too which is what makes it more interesting and fascinating it's not some generic story of oh men crave young flesh kick her to the curb no bill actually really likes her and is not interested in a younger woman it's all in her head Mm -hmm. this is a psychological issue of someone who's aging in a profession where aging is not a good thing it's not looked on as a positive moment. So, Well, she happens to be tied in with a certain writer who seems to write for younger parts. Yeah, but he does seem content Yeah, enough. Like, he grumbles, but... They do keep bringing that up throughout the movie, though. <laughs> well, they wanted there to be some sort of a dramatic yeah. tension. Because if he was just friends with Margot and had no complaints, then Eve doesn't really have any foothold. Totally, totally. Betty Davis fell in love with her co-star Gary Merrill during the shoot of this movie, and the two married in July of 1950, a few weeks after filming was completed. I didn't realize that. That's cool. While the sparks are flying between these two. They adopted a baby girl whom they named Margot. All right. 
Karen is left really patting herself on the back for her little good deed, obviously believing Eve to be some charity case. While Eve starts trying to make herself useful to Margot, Bill heads to Hollywood to work on a film. Time moves on, and just like that, Eve is embedded in Margot's life. It happens seemingly overnight, before anyone can really stop and think as to whether or not it's a good idea. Right. When Margot jumps in with some of the narration for herself, she even says, Eve became my sister, lawyer, mother, friend, psychiatrist, and cop. And Eve is perfect. She never puts a foot wrong. She gets the wet, glassy eyes watching Margot on stage. Yeah. She adores Margot. You actually almost think that there's a single white female element to it where she's actually in love with Margot. Until you realize that it's all part of her big act. This is some dedication, because this is a full-time gig, and she never misses a beat. Well, she doesn't know when somebody's going to be looking at her, I guess. Although, some of her mistakes at the end, she gets a little arrogant, a little cocky. Yes, for sure. It's the incident with the dress, though, that I think is the first indication to the audience that maybe not everything is on the up and up. Although, in and of itself, it's not... A particularly sinister moment, but it does make you think that there's a little bit more to what's going on than meets the eye. At a minimum, an unhealthy obsession. She takes the dress out of Margot's dressing room, walks out onto the empty stage. There's no one in the auditorium, but then pretends like she's wearing it and bows to the audience that's not there. It's a fun, cute little fantasy. Right. But in the context of this film where she's just playing the adoring fan, this leads you to believe that she's got some aspirations of her own. But you are right. During this sequence of the movie, it does have that single white female feel worth. It does seem like the goal is to be Margot or replace Margot specifically, not necessarily just to be famous. Yeah, either that or kill her or make love to her. But that doesn't really... (laughs) Somewhere in that sphere. (laughs) Well, that's usually where the obsession goes. Yeah. Though in the moment, Margot says nothing. She sees this little... Oh, that's sweet. ...diversion, but... It's unclear if this is really causing any doubts in Margot's mind, but it signifies a change in how the audience perceives Eve for sure. Up until that second, Eve was just a super fan existing in service of Margot, the big star, working as a live-in secretary, getting in Birdie's way, all of that stuff. But now a seed has been planted and some distrust and bitterness might be able to grow. Margot then learns that Eve has been writing to Bill in California and even places a birthday call for him when Margot forgets the date. Yeah, this might be a bridge too far. This is kind of a bridge too far. This reveals herself a little too much to Margot. The sneaking around and making Margot look bad combined with holding the dress in front of herself and taking a bow in front of the empty theater really gets Margot thinking. And Margot isn't all that mightier than thou. She doesn't seemingly hold that many things sacred, but Bill Sampson, this is a line you do not want to cross, <laughs> my friend Eve. Yes, because her love for Bill is real, but she's also kind of sensitive about the age difference and everything. She's probably not as secure in her relationship with Bill as she should be. Yes. Bill is not concerned at all, and for all we know, is a loyal man. We don't really have any reason to think he's not, so... Margot's concern is not necessarily justified, but it's there Mm -hmm. anyway. But this starts a trail of Margot comments that start to be made about Eve, I'd say. Margot's mistrust, irritation, and resentment continue to grow. 
in many ways, this is the OG single white female, although it does sort of go off on its own path. It's not, as we say, more psychotic. Correct. It's devious, but yeah. not psychotic. There's not an attempt at murder or anything. It's just, I need to be a star, and I'm going to do what I need to do. Cats aren't being thrown out the window. But it's also similar to... It was a dog. Oh. <laughs> it was similar to horror movies or other types of movies where you have the formula of I look crazy because no one else sees it yet. Right. And slowly, Margot will join Birdie yeah. as seeing through this because at first she doesn't, and even when she starts to get a little annoyed and irritated, she isn't sure yet if she should be. It's one of those things where Eve is not putting a single foot wrong. She's getting everything right. Everybody likes her on the surface, everything is fine. Yeah. She hasn't done anything wrong, per se, and yet Margot knows that something's off. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. Why would she do these things? Why would she call Bill in California? Why would she send these letters? It's too weird. At one point, I guess it was a potential idea that the Reagans would play Bill Sampson and Eve Harrington. Oh, wow. That's, I don't know, I guess a sliding doors moment in U.S. history. Because if Ronald Reagan plays Bill Sampson in a movie that wins Best Picture, does he not become president? You're thinking that. The Reagans weren't even married yet. I don't even know how this is a rumor. I I don't know. Who knows if that's true or not? (laughs) An interesting nugget, nonetheless. I thought it was really weird that Margot references Seventeen Magazine. Yeah, me too. That's so fucking wild that Seventeen Magazine's I, I, been around that long because it just seems like I such thought, a modern thing to think of. I, I was like, is she just talking about the age Seventeen? No, <laughs> Seventeen Magazine that existed nuts. since sometime in the 1940s. That's I crazy. Bill finally returns home, and it doesn't take long for he and Margot to argue. And the subject of their argument is, of course, Eve Harrington. Mm-hmm. As Bill says, you have to keep your teeth sharp, all right but I will not have you sharpen them on me or on Eve. That is true. In this confrontation, he is defensive of Eve. And Margo says, what about her teeth? What about her fangs? She hasn't cut them yet, and you know it. So when you start judging an idealistic, dreamy-eyed kid by the barroom Benjadrine standards of this megalomaniac society, (laughs) I won't have it. Totally how people talk. Eve Harrington has never by word, look, thought, or suggestion indicated anything to me but her adoration for you and her happiness at our being in love. And to intimate anything else doesn't spell jealousy to me. It spells a paranoid insecurity that you should be ashamed of. (laughs) (laughs) My only comment to this was, it's a pretty strong defense for someone Bill barely knows. Agreed. He met her for 30 seconds. And maybe, Bill, you should be a little suspicious of her ongoing adoration, as you call it. If I was dating a woman and then she had a personal assistant for some reason, and then all of a sudden that personal assistant is writing me letters, and I, I don't know, maybe Bill doesn't realize that just she's the cons- one that placed the call. but yeah, Just constantly being like, oh, isn't Margot so great? And isn't your relationship with her so awesome? <laughs> At some point you'd be like, What's wrong with this chick? Well, people were more naive. Yeah. Betty Davis does a lot of incredible things in this movie. One thing that I was picking up on, though, is she's great at portraying someone listening. Yeah, yeah. When the arguments are happening, when conversations are happening, she's making 
listening to someone else interesting in making it read on camera in a way that I don't know that there's many other actors that do it like that. Oh, yeah. But since Bill is home, it's time for a little party. Margot, nothing you've ever done has made me as happy as you're taking Eve in. I'm so happy you're happy. Now, look here. You haven't been running a settlement house exactly. The kid has earned her way. You had a pretty mixed-up inventory when she took over. Merchandise laying all over the shop. You've got Margot mixed up with a five and ten cent store. Make it worked off, Goodman. Everything on his proper shelf, eh, Max? All done up in little ribbons. I could die right now and nobody'd be confused. How about you, Max? How about me what? Suppose you drop dead. What about your inventory? I ain't going to drop dead. Not with the heat. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most ghoulish conversation. Thank you. Nothing, really. Max! Mon vieux! Fifi! The kid, a junior that is, will be down in a minute unless you'd like to take her drink up to her. I can get a fresh one. Karen, you're a Gibson girl. Thank you. The general atmosphere is very Macbethish. What has or is about to happen? What is he talking about? Macbeth. We know you. We've seen you like this before. Is it over or is it just beginning? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Mademoiselle, to you too. I distinctly remember Addison crossing you off my guest list. What are you doing here? Dear Margot, you were an unforgettable Peter Pan. You must pray it again soon. Uh, you remember Miss Caswell? I do not. How do you do? We've never met. Maybe that's why. Well, Miss Caswell is an actress. A graduate of the Copacabana School of Dramatic Art. Ah, Eve. Good evening, Mr. DeWitt. I had no idea you two knew each other. This must be, at long last, our formal introduction. Until now, we've only met in passing. That's how you met me, in passing. Yes. Eve, this is an old friend of Mr. DeWitt's mother, Miss Caswell, Miss Harrington. Miss Caswell, how do you do? Addison, I've been wanting you to meet Eve for the longest time. It could only have been your natural timidity that kept you from mentioning it. You've heard of her great interest in the theater. Well, we have that in common. Then you two must have a long talk. I'm afraid Mr. DeWitt would find me boring before too long. You won't bore him, honey. You won't even get a chance to talk. Claudia, come here. You see that man? That's Max Fabian, the producer. Now go and do yourself some good. Why do they always look like unhappy rabbits? Because that's what they are. Now go and make him happy. Now, don't worry about your little charge. She'll be in safe hands. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. <laughs> One of the AFI top lines of dialogue ever. This party, first of all, is unbelievable. It's a 25-minute chunk that really ends up being one of the highlights of the movie, for sure. Yeah, a lot of moving pieces here. But why is this line, in particular, really cool and interesting? Fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night. Seems like something people have said a million times, right? Well, to me, it seems particularly cool because in 1950, cars didn't have seatbelts. So what the fuck is she talking about? Oh, she's talking about a plane, that's weird. That that is the reference point. That's where yeah. it starts. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Yeah. 
came from a time when cars didn't even have seatbelts, so she's talking about a plane. But these are people who are generally exciting to be around, people addicted to drama. Everyone's having fun, but we're also mad and pissed at each other. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Addison DeWitt has arrived at this party, and he's brought with him a beautiful young ingenue named Miss Caswell, played by Marilyn Monroe in a very, very early role. But right away, Zach, are you saying to yourself, we have a star here? (laughs) Yeah, star is definitely born. Marilyn, of course, an icon of beauty and sexuality, but there's just something about her in her few scenes in this movie where you literally cannot take your eyes off of her. She just looks like a star. And that voice and the delivery. She's also really funny. I was reading a lot about Marilyn being in the movie for those of us who sat through the three-hour movie Blonde or know, oh, yes. know anything about Marilyn Monroe, the real story, not just the fictionalized one, she wanted so desperately to be taken seriously as an actress. She was studying and going to school even when her career was ongoing. They referenced one of her husbands in this movie. She sort of became a character in real life that was trying to emulate people. Like She gets married to a playwright. It's right. like right out of this movie. Yeah, yeah. But, of course, Betty Davis, even by 1950, is an icon. She had been around forever already. Marilyn was very intimidated by Betty Davis, <laughs> taking a lot of takes, struggling to get through her scenes. I have a feeling a lot of people were nervous so. around I, Betty Davis. I, I got the sense that Betty Davis was just creating a lot of natural tension on set. <laughs> when she walked into the room, everybody was walking on eggshells a little bit. Everything that Miss Caswell says is funny, pretty much. It's just constant one-liners written perfectly where you're left unsure about whether or not Miss Caswell is intelligent, if she has any self-awareness or humor, or if it's all unintentional and accidental. And that's a really cool way to write the character. Oh, for sure. You're not sure if she's a ditzy blonde or if she's actually really aware and cutting and she's disguising that in this character that she is. It's it's hard to tell. And that's what's so funny about it. Right. Because she says things that are genuinely clever and funny, but you're not sure if she means it that way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or if she's just being so honest and that's why it's funny. I don't know. I know, but she's bringing it. It's 100%. You can tell that this person is going to be a shining star. Zsa Zsa Gabor kept arriving on the set because she was jealous of her husband, George Sanders, and his scenes with the young blonde ingenue Marilyn Monroe. But, oddly enough, later Sanders would briefly marry Zsa Zsa's sister. So, go figure. He's married to two Gabors, but she was worried about Marilyn Monroe. She was looking (laughs) in the wrong place. There was like 20 years in between, and he was only married to her sister for a year, but Hollywood has always been very strange. Totally. (laughs) A lot of weird things happen. Marilyn's got a ton of great lines, as we said, but her most famous one is when she says, you won't bore him, honey. You won't even get a chance to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Which is an example of what I'm talking about, where you're not sure if she's saying that on purpose or if she's just being so honest, and that's why it's funny. Right. (laughs) But yeah, there's a lot of sexual innuendo in these things that they're saying to each other. And I think that you get the idea that these old movies are so chaste and asexual that you don't look for it, well, and your mindset is to ignore it. But if you actually think about stuff that they're saying, they're talking about boners and sex and right. I think we talked making about making passes and all these things on other movies from this era that they just found better ways of 
putting it in there. Yeah. More disguised ways of communicating it to us. I guess what we're supposed to take out of Addison bringing Miss Caswell to this event is that he's sort of chosen her to be his pony, but then when it's clear that she can't do it, Mm -hmm. he switches to Eve. Now, we'll get into this as we go later, but we were having a big conversation before we started recording trying to figure out what Addison DeWitt's motivations are in the film, and I guess we can get into that later, but whatever they are, be they sexual or financial, he clearly had his sights on Miss Caswell first. Right. And then when it was clear that she wasn't gonna good be, enough. Yeah, that her star wasn't going to be rising. He moves on to someone else. We have Maudlin Margot seated on the piano bench requesting the same music to be played over and over. <laughs> Hair delicately drifting over one eye, clutching the martini glass like a rosary. It's like when I have people over for a party i just play girls just want to have fun over and over (laughs) an evergreen hollywood fable probably still way too real for some actresses it maybe even feels grotesque to some of them to revel in this (laughs) because it's too real it's probably how a lot of professional wrestlers felt watching the wrestler but Margot's still got some moves. Don't worry about that. Margot asked producer Max Fabian, played by Gregory Radoff, to hire Eve at his office, thinking this will get rid of her. Of course, this move will ultimately backfire big time, but how is she to know? Everybody always underestimates their enemy in this movie. That yes. is a recurring theme. Margot is the quintessential queen bitch, but the (laughs) awkwardness of societal convention and niceties still proves to be a difficult path to navigate even for a diva. Because Eve has ingratiated herself so much with Margot's inner circle that she can't just out of the blue erupt and get rid of her. Even though she's starting to get the sense that she should, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't really have the reason yet. It's more of a sinking feeling kind of a thing. I know, but it does seem like she's reached full-blown disdain at this point. I guess she keeps turning to people to reassure her that it's right, and she's just not getting that. Yeah, and I think that it, it goes back to what I was saying about her having that sympathy in the first place. She actually doesn't have it in her to turn her out in case she's wrong. Right. She doesn't want to be mean to this person who she originally thought was so meek and innocent. Yes. She would rather kick the problem down to somebody else and say, why don't you hire her in the office and get rid of her? Thinking that's all it's going to take, not understanding the scope of the issue yet. But the vulnerability of Margot is what is key. Bill is eight years younger than her. She's aging out of her career, but she's also very afraid that she's aging out of the love of her life. Margot truly underestimates Eve, who has her hooks in Karen and is already angling to be Margot's understudy. The audience probably is cringing at this point. Eve is mixing in, becoming a fixture, interacting with Lloyd and Karen, Addison DeWitt, Max, Bill, etc. It is interesting that she's finding a way, Eve is finding a way to become the understudy without Margot being aware (laughs) That actually brings me into something that I noticed about the movie, which is like what it picks and chooses, the moments that we see versus the ones we don't see. Right. Because it jumps to these certain moments in time to connect the story together. That is true. And yes, we don't actually see any acting other than the acting in the movie, but we don't see the acting in the pretend plays, we don't see auditions, and we don't see 
when Eve actually makes this move. Yeah, and I guess a good point about Margot is despite the fact that she has expressed concerns about potentially losing her career, that has not gotten in the way of her living her life. <laughs> well, you would say there's a lot of distractions of her career. I mean, it seems like she's living a pretty... You mean uh, the drinking? Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know if that's supposed to be that it's out of control, though. No, she's but... just a certain type. You were out late last night, you know, those types of things being said. Well, yeah, she isn't on high alert. She's right. still enjoying herself, showing up late, being a diva. Yes. It's not as if the presence of Eve has snapped her to attention to assume that someone's coming for her throne or anything like that. That's all I'm saying. But there's literally no way for Margot to stop the runaway train at a certain point. We're a breed apart from the rest of humanity, we theater folk. We are the original displaced personalities. You won't have to read his column tomorrow, Eve. You just heard it. I don't agree, Addison. That happens to be your particular abnormality. Well, I'll admit there's a screwball element in the theater. It sticks out. It's got spotlights on it and a brass band. But it isn't basic. It isn't standard. If it were, the theater couldn't survive. A waiter. And that isn't a waiter, my dear. That's a butler. Well, I can't yell old butler, can I? Maybe somebody's name is butler. You have a point. An idiotic one, but a point. I don't want to make trouble. All I want is a drink. Leave it to me. I'll get you one. Thank you, Mr. Fabian. Well done. I can see your career rising in the east like the sun. You were saying? I was saying that the theater is nine-tenths hard work. Work done the hard way by sweat, application, and craftsmanship. I'll agree to this. To be a good actor or actress or anything else in the theater means wanting to be that more than anything else in the world. Yes, it does. Means a concentration of desire or ambition and sacrifice such as no other profession demands. And I'll agree that the man or woman who accepts those terms can't be ordinary, can't be just someone. To give so much for almost always so little. So little? So little, did you say? Why, oh, if there's nothing else, there's applause. I've listened backstage to people applaud. It's like... Like waves of love coming over the footlights and wrapping you up. Imagine to know every night that different hundreds of people love you. They smile, their eyes shine, you please them. They want you, you belong. Just that alone is worth anything. The party stuff is all great. A lot of subtlety, a lot of innuendo, double entendre. If you really fixate on Eve's face sometimes you will see her slyly smirking at moments that indicate a little bit more of her nature never saying a wrong word but (laughs) she can't help herself sometimes from launching into her embarrassing monologues and even though they come off as kind of childlike and naive and hokey and they you would think maybe that would just make her seem like a bumpkin and put on they, but they, yeah, they I think they actually on. kind of reveal a little bit about her. Yeah. Because she just can't help herself. If she's only there in service of Margot, she's not fantasizing about that adoration from an audience. There's always this feel like she's launching into it. Yes. 
when she turns her head and starts looking off yeah. into the distance, you're like, here we go. Yep. She's monologuing <laughs> about her dreams. <laughs> but she has an addiction mm-hmm. to applause, even though it's unclear if she's ever gotten any of her own yet. I would imagine she's done some local theater. They don't really specify too much. Yeah, we didn't get a list of her credits. In 1970, the story was adapted into a Broadway musical called Applause, and in 1973, a made-for-TV movie, also with the same title, Applause. Lauren Bacall played Margot Channing. Oh. When Bacall left the show, the actress who took over the role was Ann Baxter. Okay. Who had played Eve in the film. So she came back and took over a different part. What is this, Glengarry Glenn Yeah, really. Actually, there was a, a stage adaptation with Gillian Anderson oh. playing Margot and Lily James playing Eve. Is this fairly recent then? Y- yeah, I yeah. think so. I'm assuming it was filmed in Australia or somewhere like that. Gotcha. But I think it's on a, on a stage somewhere. Yeah. I just know from looking up clips for this on YouTube, and that was coming up a lot. <laughs> gotcha. I'm like, oh, okay. One thing we can take away, though, from the party for sure is that Eve has Karen wrapped around her finger now. Absolutely. Because even when Margot starts to get bitchy towards Eve, that all works in Eve's favor as mm-hmm. far as her perception with Karen at the moment because now she's really playing it in. And and Karen and Margot are best friends, and they're good friends, but Margot is how she is, and sometimes that pisses people off, yeah. and Karen gets annoyed. It's been boiling over, and Karen, in a good-hearted way wants to teach her a lesson. Don't get up. And please stop acting as if I were the queen mother. I'm sorry I didn't Outside mean... of a beehive, Margot, your behavior would hardly be considered either queenly or motherly. You're in a beehive, pal, didn't you know? We're all busy little bees, full of stings, making honey day and night. Aren't we, honey? Margot, really? Please don't play governess, Karen. I haven't your unyielding good taste. I wish I could have gone to Radcliffe, too, but Father wouldn't hear of it. He needed help behind a notions counter. I'm being rude now, aren't I? Or should I say, ain't something? You're maudlin and full of self-pity. You're magnificent. How about calling it a night? And you pose as a playwright, a situation pregnant with possibilities, and all you can think of is everybody go to sleep. It's a good thought. It won't play. As a non-professional, I think it's an excellent idea. Excuse me. Undramatic, perhaps, but practical. Happy little housewife. Cut it out. This is my house, not a theater. In my house, you're a guest, not a director. Then stop being a star. And stop treating your guests as your supporting cast. Now let's not get into a big hassle. It's about time we did. It's about time Margot realized that what's attractive on stage need not necessarily be attractive off. All right. I'm going to bed. You be host. It's your party. Happy birthday, welcome home. And we who are about to die salute you. Need any help? To put me to bed, take my clothes off, hold my head. Tuck me in, turn out the lights, and tiptoe out. Eve would, wouldn't you, Eve? If you'd like. 
I wouldn't like. It all happens so suddenly. Margot thinks Max will solve her problem by getting Eve out of her hair, but Eve's manipulation of Karen leads to something else entirely. Without Margot's knowledge, Eve becomes the understudy because Margot is too busy sleeping in and drinking and not showing up to auditions. Maybe because of this movie, I'm not sure, but I would have to say understudy might be the most terrifying word to an actress of the theater. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Wally Pip and his fucking headache. Yeah. (laughs) If only Karen would have understood that reference. Why would you have to do this? (laughs) I love it, too. I love when Margot shows up and Addison tells her what happened, and then you would get another scene with Miss oh, Caswell. And he's so pleased with himself about it, too. Like, as if he's done something. No, I'm talking about after that. Oh. oh. When she then pretends that she doesn't know. So R- then right. she comes up on stage as if oh, yeah. Miss Caswell still has to read for her part, and that she doesn't know that Eve is the understudy, and she just launches into this whole thing. And yeah, before they eventually realize that she knows. Max, Lloyd, Eve, and Bill are already there. Margot pretends he doesn't know what's going on. This is where she mentions Arthur Miller. <laughs> a great line where she's <laughs> she's listing people, and then I can't remember who she's fighting with. I guess it's probably Lloyd, the writer. Yeah. And he says, those guys have been dead for 300 years. And she says, all playwrights should be dead for 300 years. <laughs> oh, yeah. She can definitely bust balls. But I enjoy in the Addison sequence when he's talking about the performance that Eve gave. And we mentioned Mulholland Drive a couple times, but I immediately thought of the Naomi Watts audition in the office. Yeah. Seeing like that's the type of vibe where people are just like blown away. Like this is a moment. I think he's taking extra pleasure in it because he, for whatever reason, it's never addressed in the film, clearly doesn't like Margot. I assume she probably hasn't treated him nice all the time. Yeah, I don't think she has a lot of friends outside of her inner circle of Bill, Lloyd, and Karen. But, yeah. But obviously, to this point, he's never written a completely scathing review of her. No, and he is complimentary, but I think he does actually believe that she should make way. Yeah, for the new era. I guess he probably wants to fuck the younger actresses or something, if that's what the story is with Miss Caswell. I think that's at least part of it. Yeah, we'll get into that later. I, I'm not sure if it's just sexual, if there's a financial interest, or there what be, his deal. Or if it's just power, but I, 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 I was he, like, power over what? I don't know. I don't know. I kind of think he'd like to be linked with one of these girls, like indefinitely. The argument with Lloyd and Max over Eve being Margot's understudy is fantastic. The staging and the empty theater is really cool, where they have those side booths. I guess they're like those private balcony booth type things and they're on the side. So then at one point it's almost like David O. Russell and Lily Tomlin fighting (laughs) on the set of I heart Huckabees. You have Lloyd running off the stage, but then he emerges into that balcony thing for a minute to yell something. And then he's going around the side and he's coming around. (laughs) They're just yelling at each other. (laughs) Margot's new outrage over what is going on with Eve puts her at risk of sabotaging everything. The current play, her career and reputation, her personal relationships, including Bill, most importantly. But the crazy thing is that she's right. She understands exactly what's happening, exactly what Eve is doing, but she's now powerless to stop her. I'm nothing but a a body with a voice, no mind. What a body. What a voice. 
That ex-ship news reporter. No body, no voice. All mine. The gong rang. The fight's over. Calm down. I will not calm down. Don't calm down. You're being terribly tolerant, aren't you? I'm trying terribly hard. Well, you needn't be. I will not be tolerated and I will not be plotted against. Here we go. Such nonsense. What do you all take me for? Little Nell from the country? Be in my understudy for over a week without my knowing it. Carefully hidden, no doubt. Now, don't get carried away. Arrives here for an audition when everyone knows I will be here. And gives a performance. Out of nowhere, gives a performance. You've been all through that with Lloyd. The playwright doesn't make the performance and it doesn't just happen. And this one didn't. Full of fire and music and whatnot. Carefully rehearsed, I have no doubt. Full of those Bill Sampson touches. I am sick and tired of these paranoiac outbursts. Paranoiac? I didn't know Eve Harrington was your understudy until half past two this afternoon. Tell that to Dr. Freud along with the rest of it. No, I'll tell it to you. For the last time, I'll tell it to you. Because you've got to stop hurting yourself and me and the two of us by these paranoiac tantrums. Oh, that word again. I don't even know what it means. Well, it's about time you found out. I love you. I love you. Ha! You're a beautiful and an intelligent woman. A body with a voice. A beautiful and an intelligent woman and a great actress. A great actress at the peak of her career. You have every reason for happiness. Except happiness. Every reason. But due to some strange, uncontrollable, unconscious drive, you permit the slightest action of a kid like... A kid. Of a kid like Eve to turn you into an hysterical, screaming harpy. Now, once and for all, stop it. Lloyd then starts filling Karen's head with more anti-Margot, pro-Eve rhetoric. Not exactly untrue or even particularly unkind to Margot, but completely naive when it comes to Eve. Lots of different narrators, several characters talking about the need to give Margot a kick in the rear, coming up several times. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost weird how Kicking much they're the saying pants it. is also thrown out there. Yeah, the seat of her pants. Yeah. <laughs> they're finding all sorts of different turns of phrases to say the same thing. <laughs> a lot of talk of kicking her for yeah. some reason. As Margot's irritation grows, Karen sympathizes with Eve. The timing cannot be any more awkward either, as Margot and Bill, plus Karen and Lloyd, all go away together to a cabin for what is supposed to be a peaceful and quiet weekend. This is in the immediate aftermath of the big blowout mm-hmm. between Margot and Lloyd. Unbeknownst to Margot, a plan has already been set in motion. Hoping to humble Margot, Karen conspires for her to miss a performance by not getting back to New York on time, thus allowing Eve the chance to perform in her stead. So basically, again, it's another situation where you would think an entire movie could be made just of whatever this weekend was with these two couples. There's a lot of tension and fighting and ego going on. We don't see a second of it. We just see them coming back in a car. In the car, yeah. And And get stuck. We aren't even told... We just assume, based on her reaction, that what Karen has done is drain the gasoline out of the car so that they won't get back in time. Margot is not even really that upset that about it. Obviously, she doesn't crazy. know anything that Karen did. What, but was Karen out there like siphoning gas out of this thing? <laughs> she's like, she's a tube. lady. <laughs> I think some of those old cars, you could probably just, just like unscrew yeah. something on the bottom of the tank or something. But it does seem like a crazy move in this era. Yeah. Who knows where they're going to break down? They seem like they're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> They'll die. Yeah. It's cold. <laughs> they're like freezing by the side of the road, and she's like, guys, I have something to say. <laughs> this was a big mistake. I made a big, 
I made a big mistake. Yeah. I have to say, I'm a horse's ass. Yeah. I, I All I wanted was for Margot to have a kick in the pants. <laughs> and now we're all going to die. <laughs> Though most of the score is original music by Alfred Newman, the music during the car scene with Karen and Margot is an instrumental version of La Bidestrom, Love's Dream by Franz Liszt. The same music the drunken Madeline Margot had the pianist play over and over again during the party scene. The joke is that when she hears it again in the car, now sober, of course, she condemns it as, quote, cheap sentiment and quickly turns it off. (laughs) It's like the scene from Tommy Boy. (laughs) She's like, you you could put on something else if you want. No, I'm cool. Whatever. I don't care. And then it, like, cuts the... (laughs) Her and Karen in the backseat. Don't you remember you told me you love me, baby? <laughs> Crying. <laughs> During the scene in the out-of-gas car, Margot tells Karen that she loves Bill, but she's afraid that Bill is actually in love with, quote, Margot Channing, the stage persona instead of Margot Channing, the woman. She says, quote, Bill's in love with Margot Channing. He's fought with her, worked with her, loved her. But 10 years from now, Margot Channing will have ceased to exist. And what's left will be what? Betty Davis and Gary Merrill, who married after filming this movie together, did indeed divorce almost exactly 10 years to the day after their wedding. Davis was quoted as saying that they had married their characters from the movie rather than the actual people. Oh, no. This is actually a a great fucking scene in the backseat of the car. And it could come out in 2023... And be just as relevant, just as of the moment. Totally. Maybe more so now. You could have had this exact fucking conversation in the Barbie movie. Yeah. (laughs) Talking about the insecurity and the vulnerability. And it's very powerful on its own. And of course, there's the extra bit with Karen feeling regret immediately. Because I think she realizes that it's not just that her friend is a bitch who, quote, needs a kick in the pants. It's more... Oh, she's kind of this damaged, sad person, and she doesn't really have that much. She's kind of got this thing that she's clinging to, which is her career. Yeah. And I'm going to damage it now. And now she's feeling bad. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Matt, quit suggesting that Margot Channing is based off Tallulah Bankhead. I know that you kept saying it, but it's just not true. Well, there was just so much crossover there. Well, Tallulah was so pissed. (laughs) Back in the city, Eve makes her move. She invites the city's theater critics to attend the performance, including the acerbic DeWitt. At this point in the film, I have to say, I was starting to get Littlefinger vibes. Definitely. From DeWitt. That's a good call. He kind of sounds like a snake the way he talks and everything. He's got the accent and all that. It's just very pompous. But Eve is no shrinking violet. Her performance is a triumph. We don't see it, but we hear plenty about it. In the immediate aftermath of the show, Addison arrives backstage to overhear Bill, the director, and Margot's man, rejecting Eve's attempts to seduce him. I guess one of my questions is, how does Bill get there? I guess they got back to the city. Do they explain that? Because Margot doesn't show up. Well, Bill wasn't in the car with them. Oh, yeah, where was Bill? I don't know. It must must have been a separate car situation. Yeah, you're right. That was Lloyd who went to go get the gas. Yeah, right. They must explain it at some point. I just missed it. Could be. I don't recall. But or yeah. was Bill not a part of that weekend? I he thought was it was supposed the couple. To, yeah, he was supposed to go. 
See, that's the problem when you don't show the scenes. Right. Sometimes it's kind of hard to tell what what happened, who went who went where. But anyway, Eve attempts to seduce Bill, which plays into the single white female thing. But Bill rejects her flatly. Not having it. What did you think about Eve in the getup with the wig and the whole look here? It's sort of a wild appearance, but I think it yeah. actually works when you remember that this movie is a satire and it's funny. Well, yeah, it also makes me feel like she doesn't know what she's doing. This is not the move to try to get Bill. Yeah, it is a little bit wild. She's wiling out a little bit too right. much. She's yeah. getting out of control because she's probably coming off of a high. She never dreamed that this would actually work. And here she is like on stage. Yeah, yeah. But I think the wig is funny because, first of all, you have to imagine Betty Davis wearing the same wig, which mm-hmm. is hilarious. Yeah. But it also, it makes her look childish and bratty, like Shirley Temple or something. Agreed. But the makeup on her face smolders, so it's this weird juxtaposition of a childish brat who's not getting what she wants when she's rejected from this guy, Mm -hmm. but also a vixen, because her makeup is definitely sexier, I think, than when she's just walking around as Eve Harrington rather than this character. Yeah. So it's both somehow at the same time. I know. And what is... Bill saying he makes some sort of like a baseball reference or something when he says that she's been rejected. I feel like he says something. He does, that, but I can't remember okay. what it is. No worries. She kind of looks like Florence Pugh a little bit Yeah, when she's done up in this getup. Uh, I wouldn't say that Ann Baxter looks like her all the time necessarily, kind of in the face. Yeah. But in this particular look coming off of aged in wood, right. she looks like Florence <laughs> Pugh. Though she strikes out with Bill... Eve has seemed to capture the interest of Addison, wielding untold power and influence over the entirety of the Broadway scene from his position at the newspaper. Eve sees his interest as the opportunity that it is and likely assumes she'll still be comfortably in control with her many manipulations. It's fun to imagine these two and their inner thoughts at any given moment, Addison and Eve. What exactly... He's thinking, she's thinking in these moments backstage, especially after he just watched her try to get with Bill. Yeah, I was interpreting this scene as he's on to her and he's almost starting to send that down that road that he's going to reveal that he's on to her. Well, yeah, when he asks her specifically about the theater in San Francisco, he knows. Yeah, and then he asks about the dead husband and she's like, I'm going to go take a shower. Yeah. And then it kind of cuts off there. So you were saying that you thought that she was aware that he was on to her. But then later it seems clear that she was not aware. Right, but they start having this relationship after this. She kind of cuts it off abruptly, says I'm going to go get in the shower. Right. (laughs) And then they kind of have like a little bit of a relationship after this, and I'm not 100% clear the extent of that relationship. Right. Yeah, I don't know either. I didn't know if he was supposed to be a love interest or a mentor or what. We I'm know sure. he has more of an interest than just being pals. Well, they both do. Yeah. And it's just a matter of who is actually in control. Right. She clearly thinks that she is. But since this movie came out in 1950, if there is supposed to be a sexual element to their relationship, they never say that. And we don't really know. They don't no. even kiss or anything. And then when she so openly tells him of her plans to hook up with another guy. I know, but even in that scene, I feel like that's like her way of breaking up with him. (laughs) I don't know. She's like, well, come inside. I got to tell you something. 
Addison uses Eve's ascension for himself, but his motivations are murkier, which makes him inherently more dangerous than Eve herself. He interviews Eve for his column and goes out of his way to completely bury Margot for being too old and too bitter and too unwilling to embrace younger talent. Margot, of course, hits the fucking roof when she reads it. <laughs> Watching her read the newspaper article in front of a panicking Karen is a delight. Oh, totally. Karen's so terrified that she's going to find yeah. out what happened. I know. Well, everybody, when they got their hands on that paper, were like, we got to get over there. There's Th- going to be that's a That's true, but yeah. Karen knows that there's a a story behind the story. Well, if that yeah. story comes out, she's probably not going to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> Bill comforts while Karen realizes the truth about Eve, finally. But Lloyd, Karen's husband, is caught up in Eve fever. Ever, as I would call it. I see. He wants to convince Margot to tour the current show and open his new play earlier, presumably casting Eve in the lead. Margot does her best to ignore what's happening with Eve. She and Bill announce their engagement at dinner with Lloyd and Karen, but surprise, surprise, Eve and Addison are at the same restaurant at the same time. Eve sends a note to the table requesting an opportunity to speak with Karen in the restroom which surprises everyone. Margot, Lloyd, and Bill are too curious and send Karen in to find out what's so urgent. Yeah, although they all hate Eve and oh, yeah, at this point. Oh, yeah, there's so much tension. Yeah. It definitely reminded me of being younger. Totally. It's funny that these people are supposed to be 40 I years old. I thought about old. that, too. But, yeah, there's definitely times when you're younger and you're going to bars and stuff and you run into people. It's happened plenty of times. Definitely, me, of course. Yeah. And then everyone has to act like it's not happening, and who knows. In the bathroom at first, Eve is repentant, overly apologetic, near tears, blaming Addison completely. But then she turns on a dime. <laughs> I know, which it seemed like she was getting somewhere with Karen, to be honest. I didn't well, think she had to go this dark. Yeah, but she doesn't care about forgiveness. She needs to make sure she just gets the one thing. I don't think she was nowhere near Repairing okay. it to that point well, where she was going right, to get right, this part. Right, no way. And believe it or not, if there's anything I can do, there is something. I think I know. Something most important you can do. You ought to play Cora. You want me to tell Lloyd I think you should play it. If you told him so, he'd give me the part. He said he would. After all you've said... Don't you know that part was written for Margot? It might have been 15 years ago. It's my part now. You talk just as Addison said you did. Cora is my part. You've got to tell Lloyd it's for me. I don't think anything in the world would make me say that. Addison wants me to play it. Over my dead body. That won't be necessary. Addison knows how Margot happened to miss that performance. How I happened to know she'd miss it in time to call him and notify every paper in town. It's quite a story. Addison could make quite a thing of it. Imagine how snide and vicious he could get and still tell nothing but the truth. I had a time persuading him. You better sit down. You look a bit wobbly. If I play Cora, Addison will never tell what happened, in or out of print. A simple exchange of favors. I'm so happy I can do something for you at long last. Your friendship with Margot. Your deep, close friendship. 
What would happen to it, do you think, if she knew the cheap trick you'd played on her for my benefit? You and Lloyd. How long, even in the theater, before people forgot what happened and trusted you again? No. It'd be so much easier for everyone concerned if I were to play Cora. So much better theater, too. A part in a play. You do all that just for a part in a play. I'd do much more for a part that good. But this is another thing that is strange about this movie. So we're deep into it, right? Yep. You're really expecting post Addison's article that Margot's revenge is going to be unbelievable. <laughs> we're expecting her to power bomb Eve through a table or something. <laughs> but she doesn't. And her way of winning in the end is to not play the game at That's all right. the most she does is she takes a bite of her celery or whatever that is at addison which i guess is like flipping someone off <laughs> she takes a shot later about you can put the award where your heart's supposed to be and oh uh, yeah i think she actually maybe even takes a shot at eve earlier too it's not as if she doesn't say or do anything but there's right. never a big moment from here on out with no, her because here's what it is she's getting what she really wanted which was Bill. That's right. Yeah, which is sort of what makes the movie kind of weird. <laughs> because it is sort of like, yeah, ladies, don't worry about being a star. You really just want to be married, all mm-hmm. right? <laughs> <laughs> Once the show of regret ends, Eve delivers an ultimatum to Karen. She must either recommend Eve to her husband, Lloyd, to play Cora, the lead role in his new play, or... Eve will reveal Karen's role in the situation that led Margot to miss that damned performance. This is the first reveal of the real Eve to the audience. We've seen little flashes, but in terms of a full mask off, I think this is the first time we're seeing her. Karen just seems legitimately bummed. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, just like sad that this happened. Oh man, you're a monster. Well, I think she's just scared. Yeah. She's like, oh no. <laughs> Because Eve points out that it's not just Margot. You're the wife of a prominent writer. When this gets out that you pulled this kind of move, That's right, your reputation yeah. is ruined. Oh, yeah, it's full on black. It's gonna going to affect your husband's career. Yep. Everyone's going to hate you. <laughs> Eve lies to Addison after the bathroom encounter, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yes. So clearly she's playing or trying to play Addison, too. But... What she doesn't understand is that Addison already knows That's right. that she's going to lie to him. She, he already knows exactly player, what, yeah. what's going on. And she thinks that she's still got everybody fooled, including him. He's been in this game a lot longer than you, honey. When Karen finally returns to the table, Margot surprises everyone by announcing that she has no interest in the role of Cora after all, saying she is simply too old for the role. This is another example. You think something is happening... And then ultimately, the blackmail is immediately undone and means nothing. Because again, you might be believing that Margot's going to turn on a dime and come back and be Margot. But no, she's serious. She doesn't want the role, and that never changes. And so there's no need to blackmail Karen to convince Lloyd of anything. And even her narration coming up says, I never had to convince him because he just decided to do it anyway. Right. In terms of casting. Exactly. Eve. And so Eve is cast in the play. Max and Lloyd even convince Bill to direct, 
Margot skips rehearsals and seems to commit to a life as a happy housewife and not as a star. It is interesting that Bill stays on board. They mention his reluctance, but I guess he's just the guy. When you work with a certain crew... And it fits with what we know about Hollywood. People sue each other and then work together. It happens constantly. (laughs) It's part of it. You just have to move on. Definitely. It's Chinatown. It's (laughs) It's about what's best for business. But it's not enough for Eve. Being in in the new play, being a star on the rise, it's not enough. She comes up with this insane plan to have one of her neighbors in her apartment house call Lloyd and Karen's house. There's a fake sick interlude where they get Lloyd to come over in the middle of the night, and then we don't see the result. We're ratcheting up now because we had the real turn in the bathroom, and now this is another step. This behavior is really questionable at this point. Well, she's doing a single white female, but she's doing it to both Karen and Margot simultaneously. Right. (laughs) Because now she's thinking, all right, well, I've taken Margot's career, but Bill already turned me down, so I'll take... Karen's man, who is a writer, and now he can write me plays to star in. Definitely. Just before the new play's out-of-town premiere in New Haven, Connecticut, Eve gets a tad overconfident. She wants a victory lap. She wants to brag. Eve reveals the details of her next scheme to Addison, to Mary Lloyd, who she claims loves her, so that he can write plays for her to star in. Once again, she starts doing her far-off look move, and Addison's like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> snapping his fingers like, no, I'm over here. Yeah, get back. Come back. Yeah. We're not doing that. I don't care. <laughs> don't you understand? He'll write these plays for me. <laughs> like, ridiculous, breathy voice. I'll be a star. Fed up with her bullshit, Addison tells Eve what's what. <laughs> He's like, the audacity of this Enough. fucking bitch. <laughs> Enough. When she laughs in his face, he slaps her. Oof. After just blackmailing Karen herself, Eve knows when she's caught. Addison says that he knows her backstory is an invention. Her real name is actually Gertrude Slesnitsky. She was never married, and in fact, she was paid to leave town over an affair with her married boss. I wish it was just that simple. I'd be paying people to leave town constantly. <laughs> <laughs> He also says that Lloyd would never leave Karen for Eve. I think the insinuation is you're a loser? Yeah. Even though you're on the rise. Because he he specifies, even if he does leave Karen, it won't be for you. Meaning he's not going to leave his wife to be with someone like you or something. Is he just breaking her down, though? He's nagging her. Yeah. He tells Eve that she now belongs to him. Wow. It's true your parents were poor, and they still are. They would like to know how you are and where. They haven't heard from you for three years. What of it? A matter of opinion, granted. It's also true that you worked in a brewery. But life in the brewery was apparently not as dull as you pictured it. In fact, it got less and less dull until your boss's wife had your boss followed by detectives. She never proved anything, not a thing. But the $500 you got to get out of town brought you straight to New York, didn't it? That $500 brought you straight to New York, didn't it? She was a liar. She was a liar! Answer my question. Weren't you paid to get out of town? There was no Eddie, no pilot. You've never been married. 
That was not only a lie, it was an insult to dead heroes and the women who loved them. San Francisco has no Schubert theater. You've never been to San Francisco. That was a stupid lie, easy to expose, not worthy of you. I had to get in to meet Margot. I had to say something, be somebody, make her like me. And she did like you. She helped and trusted you. You paid her back by trying to take Bill away. That's not true. I was there. I saw you and heard you through the dressing room door. You used my name and column to blackmail Karen into getting you the part of Cora, and you lied to me about it. No, no, no! I had lunch with Karen not three hours ago, as always with women who try to find out things she told more than she learnt. <laughs> now, do you want to change your story about Lloyd beating at your door the other night? Please, please. <laughs> that I should want you at all suddenly strikes me as the height of improbability. But that in itself is probably the reason. You're an improbable person, Eve, and so am I. We have that in common. Also, a contempt for humanity, an inability to love and be loved, insatiable ambition and talent. We deserve each other. So this leads us to the big question. What does Addison want with Eve? Because it's not 100% clear to me. I guess most people probably have the answer that they just assumed to be true, but I figured it was worth exploring since totally. they don't really say it. Because I was wondering if there was a financial interest in this. I think that's fair to say. This might be a leap, but he kind of talks about his past and how he was never going to be one of these people and he had to get into this world and this life a certain way. Yeah, he insinuates that he's sort of similar to Eve in some sense. So I sort of took it as he wants to be like married to one of these girls, but there's no way... It's going to happen naturally with his charm. Yeah, although the whole movie seems to be about doing anything to get ahead, and it would seem maybe naive to think that an aspiring actress as ruthless as Eve would be unwilling to sleep with a critic or even marry one to try to get ahead so that he would write positively about her. That is true. And Which would be so obvious and everyone would know. And but. I guess like one of the weird things is he's definitely acting like she's not that big of a deal. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Which makes it really weird. I guess you could look at it as there could be sort of a sexual blackmail going on, but it could also be like he wants to be her manager agent and is taking a percentage. Yeah, it or might be all of the above. He just wants more power and influence in the world. But if he doesn't have a specific thing like sex or money, then I'm not sure what that means. Like, I don't know what he would get out of it. Right. And then we're back to the beginning, which insinuates that this second play, this play where she's playing Cora, I think it's called Footsteps on the Ceiling or some equally terrible name, <laughs> has been running for a year or some amount of time. I don't think that much time is supposed to have passed by the time you get to the Saracens Award. I think no more than a year. I think she's just done her run with one play. The freeze frame unfreezes. At this point, Eve's ascension is complete. She is a Broadway star, soon headed to Hollywood, while accepting her big award at the banquet, she thanks Margot, Bill, Lloyd, and Karen, all four, stare back coldly. <laughs> Not interested. She even refers to them as her theater friends, but it's very clear that they are not. Correct. Nice speech, Eve. But I wouldn't worry too much about your heart. You can always put that award where your heart ought to be. Eve skips the after party and returns home where she encounters Phoebe, played by Barbara Bates, a teenage fan who has snuck into Eve's apartment 
and fallen asleep while waiting, Phoebe professes her adoration and tries ingratiating herself with Eve, then begins packing her things to go. However, Eve invites her to stay over rather than take the long subway ride back to Brooklyn. As I said, moments before in the film, Eve referred to her theater friends. I think quite clearly she has no friends, and that is her motivation here in this moment. But pretty dark level of life that you've reached when you're willing to invite this person who broke into your house, an intruder. Well, it was a different time. To be your friend. There was zero fear, probably, that this young woman would do anything to her because there wasn't really a lot of examples of that because celebrity culture and obsession wasn't right. a thing really yet. If it was a man or a young man, even a teenage man, I'm sure it would be different. But it, I think the idea is there's no real physical threat. It's more of a nuisance that she's just a fan. But I think we can assume that Eve, much like Margot or any of these other diva actresses, has a huge ego. So why wouldn't she want this yeah. person who adores her to be around? And Absolutely. Especially when she doesn't have anyone else to be around. And it's very different because this insinuates a cycle, and we'll yeah. we'll get there in a second. But quite clearly, however Margot got there was different. Margot has friends. Yeah, she seemed to have more of a natural rise. But what we're getting here is... Eve has no friends, and now the same thing that she did to Margot is potentially happening to her. Yep. While Eve is resting, Addison brings Eve's award back to the room and is greeted by Phoebe, who openly admits she chose her own name. Addison realizes that this Phoebe will do to Eve what Eve did to Margot. When she is alone, Phoebe puts on Eve's elegant cloak and poses in front of a floor-length mirror holding the Saracen's award and bowing. Phoebe gave herself away by recognizing Addison at all, and then she lies to Eve uh-huh. and says the taxi driver brought it back, which is very subtle because it, you might be wondering, well, what does that accomplish? But it's the same kind of shit Eve would do, where she acted like she didn't know someone. Right. She's concealing what she knows and doesn't know, and she told Addison that her real name wasn't Phoebe, so now she's not going to want that record of that conversation being out there. You know, it's just all the same oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. All too familiar now. I did pick up this little factoid that said that somehow Barbara Bates or this character of Phoebe had some sort of an influence on Marilyn Monroe and and a personality change and sort of adapting the character of Marilyn Monroe that we would all know and love. I don't honestly know what that means. I I I could not see it really. Yeah, I find it interesting, but I thought the Marilyn Monroe we saw on screen in this movie reminded me of the Marilyn Monroe we would come to know and love for Yeah, many that's f- actually what I thought films. it said yeah. at first. I thought it said after this movie Marilyn adapted the character that she plays okay, in the yeah. movie. That's what I thought. And then I was reading it again and I'm like, "Wait a minute, it's saying Barbara Bates who plays Phoebe?" I'm like, "What?" I don't I mean, know. maybe she felt like it was an influence more than it actually who played knows? out. Yeah. Life imitated art 33 years later when Ann Baxter stepped into Betty Davis's shoes to replace her on the series Hotel in 1983 after she fell ill. Davis never returned to the show. Wow. That's a fun factoid. After the film's release, Betty Davis implored Joseph L. Mankiewicz to write a sequel that would focus on the characters of Margot and Bill, played by her lover on and off-screen Gary Merrill, 
Many years later, after she and Merrill had married and divorced, Davis ran into Mankiewicz at a party and said to him, Joe, you can forget that sequel. I've played it, and it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Just a legendary character, really, on screen and off. (laughs) Just a a a one-of-a-kind. We don't have people like that anymore. Well, what happened to me is like I would be being berated about writing the script, writing the script. I I can't do it. I'm not figuring it out. Finally, I get it done, and she's like, no, we got divorced. I'm not doing that. The plot of the film has been used numerous times, frequently as an outright homage to the film. Different things, including Mary Tyler Moore, Magic Mike oh, is yeah. basically a loose reworking with Alex Pettifer as the Eve character and Channing Tatum as Margot Channing. Kind of oh, a weird yeah. coincidence okay. there. A 2008 episode of The Simpsons. I mean, of course, The Simpsons. The Pedro Almodovar 1999 film All About My Mother, Gossip Girl, The L Word, Glee, Will and Grace, Political Animals, Gilligan's Island, Quantum Leap. Huh. There's a movie called All About Steve. Yes. Family Guy, Dick Van Dyke, Designing Women. It goes on and on. This is a template, folks. It's a blueprint. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. It's one of the defining films of Hollywood in a lot of ways. Yeah, and just so well written, and the performances are great. It's really a masterpiece. If you can write a script 73 years ago that's still making me laugh, right? then you've accomplished something. Because humor does change a lot. And there are things, even from five to 10 years ago, that aren't funny anymore, because humor changes so much. But the performances are so strong, and and it's just such a tight, funny script. Every line is great. So let's move into segments. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I gonna know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. We'll do recommendations first. Matt, yeah, let do me, you have anything? Yeah, let me do a, a couple oh, for no. you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I've got, Confess, Fletch. I've, yeah, I've got a seaside. <laughs> I don't know if these. Well, at least one of them is better. I've got a, a seaside double feature. <laughs> I watched both these movies the other night. One for the first time. One to rewatch. So streaming on Max. I, I'd never watched this before. Stephen King, Dolores Claiborne. I've seen it. Yes. I thought it was okay. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's all right. Yeah, it's the heavy main accents. Jennifer Jason Lee, Kathy, Kathy Bates. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Almost like uh, sharp objects a little bit, where she's like coming back to town, right? And yeah. reliving this thing from her childhood, and then you know another one, just bizarre, but so fun to watch, the lighthouse. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say by the sea. Oh God, no! But I did watch that like not that long ago. <laughs> I bought it. I feel like by the sea, well, it's gonna have its time. So <laughs> we're the only people who like by the sea. I think, I think it's gonna come back. Like I think people will be like, we slept on by the sea. <laughs> Come to the greatest moments in the history of forever for hot takes yeah. on By the Sea. By the way, The Lighthouse streaming on Prime. Yeah, I have a feeling a lot of our listeners like The Lighthouse. We'll probably get to it someday. Such a cool movie. Mine Weird, is only a streaming rental, unfortunately. I do have a Blu-ray, but I can't even let Matt borrow it because it's Region B. I don't know if there is a Region A Blu-ray. There probably is. But Judy Holiday beat out not only... Betty Davis and Ann Baxter from All About Eve, but Gloria Swanson as well from Sunset Boulevard to win Best Actress in 
fifty for Born Yesterday. Ooh. Which is speaking of Sunset Boulevard, William Holden is also in Born Yesterday. And it's kind of a goofy comedy where Judy Holiday plays the girlfriend of a gangster type who then I believe gets mixed up with William Holden's character who I can't remember if he is a, like a lawyer or a newspaper guy or whatever. I don't know. But I just remember it being very funny. She is excellent in the movie. Her right. win reminds me of Marissa Tomei winning for My Cousin Vinny where it was surprising. No one expected it, but it's a kind of a lighthearted comedic performance which is not often rewarded. And I think that's interesting. It may not be the fairest system when two people split the vote. And if you did weighted votes, then you would have probably a more true winner, a more true representation of who people thought was the best. But I think it's kind of cool that sometimes it leads to different people winning and it shakes things up a little bit. Because as we've seen, the awards are very predictable and mostly boring. So anything that shakes it up is kind of fun. And while it may not be the fairest system, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, totally. But yeah, if you get a chance ever, Born Yesterday, the 1950 version, I think they remade it in the 90s, but... I'll keep my eye out for an opportunity. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead, you keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. So now it's time to read an email. Folks, email the show, greatestpod at gmail.com. And this week's email comes from Carla, who is following up on the once-bitten listener request. During that episode, I requested that she write in and explain herself a little bit, just because it seemed like sort of a random movie to request a podcast to cover. And then that got me thinking, well, we've done a few random movies for sure and even the ones that aren't that random i'd still like to hear people's stories so folks please reach out some of you've already done it we've actually been getting emails in about this subject please continue to do it and as i said at the beginning of the show you can write in about other movies as well other ones we've covered or even ones we haven't if you have interesting anecdotes but this email from carla is a good template for any of you who are wondering how to so pay attention do this She writes, Zach and Matt, thank you so much for covering my listener request of Once Bitten. I was afraid you guys were going to hate it, but was so happy to hear that it was an enjoyable watch. To answer your question of why I picked this movie, it's been one of my favorites since I was a little girl. My mom was was a very overprotective parent, but when it came to movies, she never seemed to censor or care Love that. About what I was watching, I really enjoyed horror movies, and one day, five-year-old me was scanning the horror section of Hollywood Video, and I recognized Jim Carrey's face on the cover of Once Bitten. I was a big fan of his as The Mask and Dumb and Dumber had come out the year before. I told my mom that would be my movie pick for the night. I instantly fell in love with the movie and re-rented it multiple times, mainly to memorize the choreography from the hands-off dance sequence. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) I also remember going to the fabric store with my mom and begging her to get me some yards of black lace fabric to try and recreate the Countess's gloves. Wow. Even though I did not fully grasp the dialogue of this movie at five years old, I was really drawn to the phenomenal soundtrack and young Jim Carrey. It also made me realize that vampires weren't so scary. This movie has been in my life for a very long time. I have yet to meet someone 
who has even heard of the movie, let alone seen it. I love introducing it to the special people in my life, even now at 33. It still brings me so much joy to watch, and there's so many good lines that I cackle laugh at to this day. Having to work at 6 a.m. on a Sunday, I was so happy to have you guys on in the background talking about one of my favorite movies. You guys killed it and really made my day. Love the show so much. Carla, P.S. I knew, all capital letters, K-N-E-W, knew you guys would be obsessed with Karen Coppins. (laughs) (laughs) So predictable. I know. Oh man, that's great! I feel like yeah, oh, like the, a woman exists in a movie. Yep, we love her. The first uh, <laughs> section of that would just be like a great letterbox review for this movie. That, and I have this nostalgic pain when I hear people talk about renting movies because it was such a. I feel like one of the things that brought me joy in life. I know, and, and it can't be replicated with anything. I know. <laughs> they took the red box away from my closest grocery store and even though i never rented anything from it in years i still kind of was like wow so they're not even doing that anymore yeah that era is over and that couldn't even come close to a video store obviously but it just sucks because people who are young now i don't think understand that there was something fun about that whole process and you had to take it serious because you couldn't just bail on your movie I know. You were investing in it. There, there was basically, you you know, you might get more than one, but whatever it was, you made your pick or picks, yeah. and then that was it. And I don't know what it was or what this difference is, but going to a movie rental store, I could be very decisive about my picks, whereas now I sit on these streaming services and scroll through the same movies for hours. I know, which is ironic because you can bail out of them now without a second thought. I know. Whereas before you needed to be sure because you weren't going to, your parents weren't going to drive you back. Right. Get new ones. Well, that's why the move was always get two. So if one's a bust. If you could. Yeah. yeah. Some, some of the local mom and pop type stores would offer insane deals. Now, granted you'd have to go back in time to when I was very young, but you could get like crazy deals, like yeah. five for ten bucks or five for five bucks or something. Cra- yep. One night of the week or whatever it was. Until Blockbuster just buried all those places. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was a commitment. You had to get in your car, go somewhere. But it was so fun to look through all the aisles and you'd find stuff that looked weird or you never heard of. And the I boxes know. were so interesting. And granted, most of the movies, especially of the 80s, didn't really live up to their covers most of the time, but it was still fun <laughs> to look at them. Absolutely. Well, that was a great email, Carla. I, that's Yeah, the story the about doing the choreography and the gloves and stuff, that's pretty much exactly what I want to hear. Exactly. <laughs> this is definitely a podcast of loving movies. It would be definitely easy to yeah. talk about stuff that we didn't like as much and be snarky and critical, but... It's not really fun, and so that's why I want to hear people tell me like these things. Look, I hope all of you are still listening. I want to hear your stories about Eddie and the Cruisers, Three O'Clock High, Brotherhood of the Wolf, yeah, JFK, any of these movies we've done over the years. I, I want to hear the first time you saw it or any of those things, and we can have fun celebrating all these different movies, Absolutely. especially the ones that are a little off the beat. More path. niche. Yeah, because those ones feel more personal. Definitely. When we were doing that pick the run of three episodes thing or whatever, and I went on that whole thing about Cedar Rapids, that's kind of what I mean. And that clearly 
once bitten is that movie for Carla. It's it's her movie. And so that's kind of what I was hoping to hear from people is that kind of stuff. So Definitely. More of that. Great job, Carla. Thanks for the support. Thanks for the listener request. And thanks for following up with that email. That was perfect. Folks, please send in your little anecdotes, your thoughts on your listener request or any other movie. Greatestpod at gmail.com. Find us on X slash Twitter at greatestpod where you can request a listener request, a sticker, anything like that. Don't delay. We're running out of slots for listener requests already, even for next year. So if you want to do it, don't wait any longer. Any other questions, just hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already, please, what are you waiting for? (laughs) That's all we want. Anyway, we're coming back pretty quick with a give us a second. So make sure you're subscribed so you never miss anything. Constant stuff happening. Absolutely. Matt can barely contain it. We got a hot product right now. Barely contain his excitement. (laughs) Yeah, we have a hot product. We just got to keep dumping content on our heads like an avalanche. (laughs) An avalanche of shit onto our listeners. (laughs) All right, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. This were a memoir, I would tell about my wife. What a battle axe. <laughs>
<laughs> a I battle mean, axe? I mean, I, No I, one's I, called their wife a battle axe since 1945. Listen, listen, come. How do you feel about a woman? She's supposed to be my life partner. I look in the mirror the other day and I says to her, I says, honey, I look in the mirror and all I see is a fat, ugly old man. And I need you to give me a compliment. She says, all right then. Uh, your eyesight is damn near perfect. I said, you dirty dog. <laughs> Wait, you, you called her a dirty dog? A dirty dog. A well, dirty dog. We have fights constantly. Oh, you, you do, know? do you? Oh, and sometimes it bleeds over. Like we were driving a car. We went past a bunch of animals. There was a pig, a cow. And I, I admit this is a little cruel. You were kind of mad at her at the time. I was mad at her. So I said, hey, you see that pig, that cow, you know, horse? That remind you of any of your relatives? She says, yeah, my in-laws. I said, you dirty dog. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Dirty dog again. Wow. I tell you, until I met my wife, I always felt incomplete. Now I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say this. What is going on? Well, I will say this. What is this going, what is going on? I will say this. This is a 1935 radio show. <laughs> Youngman, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. What's that to say then, Norm? Let me, let me see. Norm, what's that to say? Tell us more, Norm. <laughs> We're going to take a break for Chesterfield Figurettes. <laughs> well, let me say something more, more modern and stylish then. Okay. My uh, wife went into a coma. Oh, sorry to hear that. And uh, the doctor said uh, to me, you won't hear this from any 1935 comic. <laughs> he says to me, there's one way to wake her up, but it's a little unconventional. You go in there and you have oral sex with her. I said, by God. <laughs> he says, I've seen it work. I said, well, I'm willing to try. <laughs> so I go in there. I'm in there about five minutes, and I come out. I said, Doc, she's choking. 